Have you enjoyed this series so far? It's good, isn't it? We've been drawing a lot out of it. I'm hoping that by now you are absolutely convinced that there is a call of God on your life, whether you are really clear about what that is or not, that actually God knows you by name, he cares about you and your life exactly as you are, and he has plans and purposes that he has for your life specifically. Do you believe that? Yeah. We've got to grow into these things sometimes. It, it begins with believing that God loves me enough, just as I am, warts and all, to be able to have a purpose for my life. And I just want to come back there. Before we go any further, I want you all just to remember that God calls every single one of us not to stay as we are, not to remain in the form that we found ourselves today, but actually he's got a vision for your life that is beyond what you've currently understood. God is always trying to take us from glory to glory. He never wants us just to level off and stay where we are. He always wants us to grow more fully into the person that he has dreamed that we would be. It's his way. And just like he met Moses, he wants to meet with us. He wants to meet with us at different points along the way. And just like with Moses, we are often full of arguments about our inadequacy. We often are fully aware that we are just weak and finite people. We know where we have stumbled in the past. We know where we've let people down in the past. We know where we don't trust ourselves as much. And we know where... Sometimes in the past we've, we've not trusted God as we should as well. And sometimes we can write ourselves off as ideal candidates for God's purposes. But with all of Moses' arguments, God just one at a time answers those arguments until Moses runs out of excuses. And God says, what do you have in your hand? Remember? And Moses has a stick. Of all things, of all the powerful, dynamic things in this life, he has a piece of wood in his hand. And God says, I will use that. Because that stick represents who he was as a desert shepherd. And so God said, it's the desert shepherd that I want. What it is that you're good at, who it is that you are, what your skill base is, what your personality is, what your experience in this life is. I will use that to be able to fulfill my purposes here on the earth. Whatever it is that you have in your hand, what, whatever it is that you are and what you're good at, God can use that. And that is important for his purposes. So in this section, we're going to look at what it means to step forward into what God has for us. What it is to grow into the things that God sees our life is about. If it's true that God has a vision for each of us, then it's true that we have to move in the direction to realise that vision over our lives. So we've got to take the God's word seriously. And we've got to look at this pa passage with the question of what do I need to consider in order to grow in God's view of who I am and what he wants me to do. So let's go through it. I'm gonna, again, I'm going to go through it verse by verse because these verses, I believe, are just, just pregnant with meaning. They've got so much for us to learn from. I don't want to skip over anything. So verse 18. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, 
Please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt to see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. This is an interesting verse for a number of reasons. First one, this is the first time where we get an idea that Moses has said yes to God's call. Up until this point, he's just arguing and saying, what, me? Really? Here am I, send him. He's saying, I can't face this idea of coming up against Pharaoh. And he argues, and he says about how inadequate he is for the task. But this is the first time we get a a hint that Moses is actually saying yes to what God is doing. He goes to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he confesses that he needs to go to Egypt. How does he do that? He says, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt, to see if they are still alive. Is that true? Is that why he wants to go to to Egypt? Is he going because he's curious as to whether they're alive or not? No. It's kind of half-truth, isn't it? Is it it a lie? (laughs) Maybe. Is it doubt? I wonder if, at this point, whether Moses quite believes, yet, fully, what God has asked him to do. God has said you're going to be instrumental in releasing a whole people group from the greatest superpower on earth to lead them out of the grip of Pharaoh and to lead them through the desert to worship on the mountain that he's met God upon, right? That's, that's quite a lot to get your head around. I wonder if at this stage, if he's still doubting whether that can actually happen or whether he's just saying, well, look, I'm going, but I haven't come to terms with it yet. Maybe it's that. Maybe he can't bring himself to, to, to say it. Or maybe it's discretion, it's wisdom. It could well be that to say to his father-in-law, I'm going to go and take on Pharaoh. God has met me in the desert, and he has chosen me, your 80-year-old son-in-law, <laughs> to go and take on Pharaoh one-on-one, so that he will release a whole people group and I will be able to bring them out into the desert. How would his father-in-law have received that information? I don't know. I imagine it would have been very difficult for him just to say, of course, Moses, go and be blessed. Go in peace. It may may have been that his father-in-law, because he was a wise man, he may have tried to sort of talk him out of it or to try and bring a bit of reason into the situation. Well, come on, you know, let's, let's be realistic here, Moses. It may be that he would fear for his daughter, Zipporah, and his grandchildren. We know he's got two sons in this story. It would be legitimate, wouldn't it, to think in those terms. So Moses, for whatever reason, decides that he's going to be selective about who he discloses this vision to. And he certainly isn't going to tell the whole story to this guy, Jethro, at this stage. So, he's stepping forward. He is saying, yeah, I'm going. But at this stage, he's been very discreet about what God has asked him to do. Verse 19. Now the Lord said to Moses, in Midian, go back to Egypt. For all the men who are seeking your life are dead. 
is there some hesitation here? He's still in Midian. He's asked his father-in-law for his blessing to go back to Egypt. And then verse 19 says, Now the Lord said to Moses, still in Midian, you kind of get the idea that Moses say, Yeah, I'm going. Definitely going. Going, going this afternoon, or maybe tomorrow. Actually, it's my birthday next week. Uh, I might just wait for that, and then I'm going to go. Maybe when the weather warms up. You know, you just don't know. It's almost like he's standing on a precipice. Have you ever done rock jumping? And you're standing there, you can say, right, I'm going to go on three. One, two, three. <laughs> on three. And it's, it's a little bit like that. I, you kind of get a sense that he's, he's saying, yeah, I'm going to go. But he's not going. And, and God has to say, while he's still in Midian, go to Egypt. Just want to point it out to you, Moses, you are still in Midian. <laughs> go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Now this, this verse would probably work better if it was preceding the previous verse. <laughs> It would work better if, if Moses was reassured that all the people that are seeking his life are dead. Therefore, he went to Jephthah and said, now, can I go and see if my countrymen are still alive? But it doesn't, it doesn't work that way around. And I like this because it kind of shows that God is looking for that little bit of commitment and that little step into the dark, that, 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 that step of trust before God is then willing to come in and bring reassurance and to deal with some old fears. Moses begins to step out. He begins to put things in motion, even if he's not too quick about it. He begins to put things in motion even before he knows that the very people that sought his life and knows his name and has a bounty on his head are dead. He's still willing to put the first step forward. But at that point, God says, right, he's going. he is going. I'm going to bring him some reassurance and a kick up the backside to get going. Now, God is like that. Sometimes he waits for our agreement. He waits for our step of faith, our, our moment where he can see that our hearts are yielded to his plan and that we trust him enough. And then he'll come in with the next level of reassurance or he'll come in with the next level of instruction. He'll come in with the sense of timing. Of, Now's the time. Go. And... I've often wondered why God is like that. Why, is he, why does he often wait for us to find out the hard way that God is faithful? Sometimes he's, he comes at the 11th hour, doesn't he? Sometimes the only way we can understand how faithful God is is by just stepping out into the blind unknown and seeing if he's going to meet us there. You know, it reminds me of what he said earlier in this passage in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. I'm just going to read it to you. Because it's important. He's uh, talking with the Lord at the burning bush. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And what does God say? Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I that have, have sent to you. When you have brought the people out, you will worship God on this mountain. So how will I know? That I am this chosen person to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. How will I know? Because when you've done it, then you'll know. <coughs> it's not much in the way of reassurance, is it? But that was God's way. He said, 
just go at my word, trust me at my word, and then when you've done it, then you'll know. You'll know. And sometimes it's like that. It's a white knuckle ride with God sometimes. You know, has anyone ever done a parachute jump? Hands? No skydivers? Uh, bungee jump? A couple of bungee jumpers? There's three bungee jumpers. I did a bungee jump once. Uh, it was in Vienna, and I saw them doing it in this big square, and I thought, I've got to have a go at that. I was on a gap year. You're not allowed to say no to experiences on a gap year. You've just got to do it when you're young and crazy and wild. Yeah. So... I had a go at a bungee jump, and I remember standing there, it was only a crane one, it wasn't like one of these great big things in New Zealand where, you know, your eyes nearly pop out. It was just a small one, really. But I remember standing there on the platform, having been hoisted up on this crane, and thinking, I really hope this elastic band is strong enough. And then, how do you test it? You throw yourself off. And if you don't hit the bottom, it's strong enough. And that's the fun of it. That's the exhilaration of it, is you're doing something which is, feels completely mindless, and yet it's kind of fun of it. And as soon as you do it, I want to do it again. You get that, I've got to do that again. You get that amazing, exhilarating feeling. And the next time, you know, and you're going to throw yourself off in a crazy way, because you're now confident. It's the same with all sorts of things. Has anyone done scuba diving? How do you know? Your buoyancy, your, your, your respiratory equipment is going to work at 30 metres down. First time you go in, you don't. Until you do it and then you realise, this is amazing, I'm weightless. I'm deep down under the water, there's a whole world down here. This is an incredible experience. And when you come up, you just want to do it again. You just want to get back down there. But you've got to learn by experience that it was safe. Beforehand, you could be absolutely terrified. And it's like that. I believe that following God is like that. You just don't know, until you've tested God's faithfulness, you don't know whether God's going to come through for you or not. Even if in your mind you know that the answer is, should be yes, God is going to meet me there, and it's going to be okay, you don't actually carry that experiential truth until you've stepped out and had a go. And once you've done that and you realise God is faithful, you want to do it again. And then you see these guys who are veterans, you know, skydivers. They don't bat an eyelid when they jump out of the plane. These guys do all the formations and things. They're not the ones quivering in the back of the little two-engine plane hoping that their parachutes are going to open because they know that every time it does. That's where God wants us to be. He wants to, to trust him like a veteran skydiver or like a deep-sea diver. He wants us to know that the, when we trust in him, when we put our trust in him, in that place of vulnerability, that God will always come through for us. And the only way to get there is to push through the pain of not knowing those first few times. So in verse 19, we've got some reassurance and some old fears are dealt with. It may have been that Moses was, was struggling mentally with those old experiences. Maybe he was seeing faces. Maybe he was seeing, uh, rehearsing some old things that had happened in Egypt when he murdered somebody and had to run. He was thinking of, of Pharaoh saying, there's a price on my head. And maybe that was what was causing him to hesitate. And God wanted him to get rid of some baggage. So he reassures him that he is already at work. He has already cleared the way. 
and he has already dealt with his past. He has a clean slate. So Moses temporarily has a little bit of peace and respite. He knows now that he's dealing with a completely new situation and he can face it. Let's go on to verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and he mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. He began to return to the land of Egypt at last. But this is what he does. He gets going. He begins to move in the direction of what God has said over his life. And he takes care to take his family along with him. I really like this. It's important that this is put in. The first thing, after he has yielded to God's God's vision over his life, after God has redirected him into a new way, the first thing he does is he takes care to bring his family along. Some people don't do this. This is a mistake. You know, if God... Is, has whispered something into your heart that is going to impact your family. And I'd say this was a good case of that. This was going to impact Moses' family pretty profoundly. Then it's really important that you share it with your nearest and dearest. It's really important that you're communicating well at home. There's too many people that, that hear something from God. They sense that God is, is leading them in a new way. Um, and they just expect everybody around them just to get on board. If that's your temperament, I want, I want to encourage you to slow down and take time to communicate with those who are nearest and dearest to you. Whether it's in a workplace situation and communicating really well with your team, or whether it's in, in a family situation. And I think family is m- most important here, to make sure that you have agreement with your family over what God seems to be whispering with you. At the time where you sense, actually, I need to yield to this, I need to start stepping into this, what God has begun to whisper after you've weighed it for a little while, maybe confessed it to a Jethro figure, then you need to make sure you're bringing your family along with you because God wants us to stay together as families as best we can and to step into his purposes as families. It's awful when you hear stories of the purposes of God coming between members of a family and people moving in different directions. We need to be able to go together. Also, he calls the staff of God (coughs) the staff of God for the first time. That's a faith statement. Up to this point, it's just been his shepherd's staff. And God says, right, take this staff in your hand. With it, you're going to do my wonders. And then at this point, Moses calls it the staff of God. This is no longer mine. This is what God is going to use to do his purposes. So he starts speaking in a positive and faith-filled way. When God has whispered something over your life, begin to speak in line with what God has said. Don't speak to God in one way and then speak about everything else to the contrary of what God has said. Discipline yourself to speak in line with the vision that God has given for your life. Speak positively. Because as you speak things out, things become stronger in your heart. The vision becomes stronger. So now Moses is setting out face towards Egypt with the staff of God in his hands. Let's get into verses 21 to 23. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power. 
but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. What an ethical conundrum. God says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let them go. But Moses, you're to say to him, you refuse to let him go, so I'm going to kill your firstborn son. There is a lot of ink been spilt over these verses. Critics to the Jewish and Christian religion would say, well, this God of yours violates human free will. He forces Pharaoh's hand in this, and then he's unjust because he blames Pharaoh for what God himself has willed him to do. And he sadistically takes Pharaoh's son because of what God himself has caused. That's what the critics would say. So does God violate Pharaoh's free will? Does he do so in order to murder many children in Egypt? We need to get to know God according to the fullness of Scripture. It's not just one place that you can go to to understand what God is like and what motivates his heart and how he works amongst humanity. You have to take scripture as a whole. And there are so many places we could go here to try and learn. Is that what God's character is like? When people paint the picture of God like that. Why don't we just go to Psalm 103, verses 6 to 13. I'm going to read it in the NLT because I like it in this version. Psalm 103, verse 6. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. Keep that in mind. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. He revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. What's the Lord like? The Lord is compassionate and merciful. He's slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor will he remain angry forever. He does not even punish us for all our sins, and he does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. That's what he's like. He's a generous and gracious God that does not return judgment on all of our sins. But he is a God of justice, especially for the oppressed. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that it is Jesus who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. Jesus is the clearest picture of what God's nature is. And Jesus was able to hold judgment and justice and grace in perfect balance. Now, Jesus was always full of grace. He was always full of mercy, full of loving kindness, full of going the extra mile for the poor. He was always serving the oppressed. He was always standing in solidarity amongst those who had been abused. But he had one eye on justice. 
He did speak of judgment, didn't he? And that was important. He holds justice and mercy in balance. He said one day the world is going to be judged. He didn't skirt around the issue. And the consequences for some are going to be disastrous. God is also the life giver. He alone has the right to give or to take away life without rebuke. We could never take lives in the name of God. We can't do that because we're not him. But he can withdraw the gift of life if he chooses. Because all life comes from God. In this respect, we can't judge him in any human court. We can't put him in the dock and accuse him as we'd accuse human beings. He is God and he has the right to take away life. He has the right to bestow life. It's his to give or to take away. So does he tamper with Pharaoh's free will? A bit, yes, it would seem. Pharaoh is extremely selfish and stubborn. Back in chapter 3 and verse 19, he says that he will not permit you to go except under extreme compulsion. That means Pharaoh knows how to dig his heels in and he knows how to act selfishly and make sure that he gets his own will done. And at the moment, at this point, the Israelites are serving his purposes, they're building his cities, and they're doing exactly what he wants them to do. So he's not going to let them go easily. But God is not going to let him off the hook lightly. He intends to judge and punish Pharaoh and the racist, fascist Egyptians. And to do that, Pharaoh has got to hold on until it really hurts. You know, Pharaoh could, potentially, when things get inconvenient and uncomfortable through the plagues, Pharaoh could let them go early. And I think that would be an absolute disaster. He could dismiss Israel as soon as the Nile turns to blood and the frogs come out and they all die in the streets and the place stinks. As soon as they become inconvenient, he could have said, right, we've had whatever we want out of you guys. We've abused you for 400 years. You've built our cities. You're now getting inconvenient. Get out. We don't want you here anymore. And they would have caused Israel to crawl out the back door as the broken unwanted, rejected slaves that they've become. And God wasn't going to let that happen. You know, there are people in this world that know what it is to be abused until they become inconvenient and then they're told to leave. And they leave not only broken but also rejected and worthless. That is just a despicable way to treat a human being. And it happens all around the world today. Where one party, one human, will abuse another to the point that they're broken. And when they're broken and can't be used anymore or are unwanted, then they're just another mouth to feed. So then they're gotten rid of. So they're not only broken and abused, but they're also rejected and worthless. If Pharaoh's will had not been strengthened, that would have been the story of Israel. And Israel would have ended up at the borders of the promised land, 
broken, crushed, rejected slaves. And God wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. He wanted to punish Pharaoh for the centuries of atrocities that he'd done, all of that ill treatment, all of that abuse. And the world was going to know about it. He was going to judge Pharaoh in front of a watching world. He also wanted the people of God to know that they were precious, that they were worth fighting for, that they were a prize that God was willing to wrestle over. The people were going to be exalted. Pharaoh was going to be humbled. And they were going to leave Egypt as the chosen people of a powerful and intimately involved God. God calls them his firstborn, his firstborn son. And he wants the people to reimagine who they are by watching a God who is willing to fight for them tooth and nail and to value them that much, to do that much for them and to administer justice for them, to satisfy that cry in their hearts that said, this is wrong and we shouldn't be treated this way and to allow Pharaoh to taste what it is to lose your sons because of a higher power and to know the helplessness of what that feels like. It was a just judgment to fit the crime that the people of Israel had experienced for so many years. The people of Israel were going to be like the the princess in the fairy tale that had been fought for, the most important people on earth. And they were, to, they were not to be messed with either. When they arrived finally on the borders of the promised land, they were known to be these people who were deeply dignified. They were the people that were chosen. They were special. They were a warrior nation that wasn't crushed down and disempowered, but instead they were valued and they knew who their identity was. And they were not to be messed with because the God of this people loved them to bits and was clearly on their side and was willing to move in great power on their behalf. And so the Canaanites were terrified. They would not have been terrified had they left on the second plague. Do you understand? Sometimes the way God worked in our lives is beyond the immediate and it has long-reaching implications. This was a global event. And this was a nation being redeemed. Receiving a new name and a new identity. And it wasn't going to happen with them whimpering out of the back door as a rejected broken people. I haven't read that in any commentary. This is my personal interpretation of what was going on here. And I believe that Moses needed the blueprint at this point as he was heading towards Egypt. So yes, God did strengthen Pharaoh's resolve so that he could punish him in the way that he deserved. He poured out once for all and proved That Pharaoh was not divine, as he claimed, because Pharaoh claimed to be the son of God, uh, a deity on the earth. But instead, he was an arrogant and immoral fool, and that was clear before the world. Justice and truth is important. We need to know where to take things when we have been abused when we have been mistreated. I once heard Jackie Pullinger talking about this. She was working 
with prostitutes from Hong Kong. And I remember her telling the story about some of the brothels in Hong Kong that are like mega brothels, which has just got so many women working 24-7, and they have to hit a quota every day of the amount of men that they bring their service to, shall we say. And it's so, such a high turnover that nobody can really regulate what, what happens in those tiny little booths. And the women that she often receives into her community are, are women that have been in that, that environment until they're so broken that they're not wanted anymore. And so they're kicked out of the back door because they can't, be, they, they can't make a profit from them anymore. And those women end up in her care and she tells them about a God who loves them. And that she was saying, actually, we need to deal with the injustice. There is a cry of injustice that is within them that has to be satisfied this matters. They have to know where to take that anger, that pain, that hurt. The Israelites needed to know where to take that. And they were able to see a clear sense of justice being meted out. Following the cross, there is one place to take that sense of brokenness and injustice and anger. To our need for justice can now be taken to the one place where punishment was fully wrought on the cross. We don't like to think that we cry out for justice, but actually as human beings, it's a very real need. And until you've, maybe until, until we've experienced that death of degradation, maybe we, we can't feel it in the way that some can. But there are women out there, there are men as well, who need that sense that somehow, in some way, somebody has put things right. That, that justice has been served. That they are satisfied because somebody has paid the price for what happened, because it matters and it hurt. That person is Jesus Christ, who was abused and broken physically, mentally, psychologically, in his community, he was rejected in the most profound sense. That he may say, look, let me stand where your abuser should stand. Let me stand in the dock. And all of that anger that you feel, all of that sense of justice that is needed, let it be laid upon me. So that we can stand before a crucified Jesus. And all of the pain and the suffering that is in him. And something within us says, it is enough. And I am free. Justice has been served. And at that point, it's possible to move on with your life. I've just been reading a book called The Kite Runner by... Anyone read that? Khaled Hussani. Yeah. It's a book of redemption. But it is also a book that outlines just how, what a grip abuse can have on somebody's life. And about how that life can sometimes not move on until there's, there's justice been satisfied. Justice is incredibly important and we see it here. Actually the Israelites are not going to be able to move on and become the people that God has called them to be until justice is done. So we need to be sometimes a little bit less sentimental about our faith. Sometimes our faith has teeth. <laughs> God is a just God as well as a God of grace, and that is important. So let's move on to some more tricky verses. 
Now it came about, verse 24, at the lodging place on the way, that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. (laughs) Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone at that time. She said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What does all that mean? (laughs) God calls the man. The man agrees. He loads his family on the donkey. I'm going to Egypt. I trust you, God. All the people that were out to kill me are dead. I'm stepping into the vision. I'm stepping into the purpose. And God comes to kill him. (laughs) Sometimes the scriptures can be tricky to understand, right? Clearly, this is something to do with circumcision. And I, I would say there's definitely a backstory here as well. Moses was an Israelite born into, uh, into the covenant, almost certainly circumcised. Remember, he, he was with his family until he was about three months old, and then he was floated out on the water in the basket, remember? So he would have certainly been around for the first eight days, and he's certainly going to have been a circumcised boy. So it's not Moses that we're worried about here. It's Moses' children. Moses, at this point, has two sons. And uh, clearly, they're not circumcised at this point. Zipporah was a Midianite. They don't circumcise their children, and maybe she didn't want her kids circumcised either. There's a sense in which there is a bone of contention between Moses and Zipporah. That's what I read into this, uh, between the lines. Clearly this is an issue, because when Moses' life was threatened, I don't know if he had seizures or something, maybe bitten by a snake in the desert, something happened where clearly Moses' life was threatened, and they understood it as not being of the enemy, but God was smiting him. And I think Moses probably had an understanding that God was saying, look, you need to circumcise your sons or else. Something is coming unless you do this, because clearly as soon as Moses' life is in danger, Zipporah runs for the flint knife, grabs her son, the poor lad, (laughs) off comes the foreskin, and she throws it at Moses' feet, as if to say, there you go, finally you've got your way. That's kind of what I read into it. I think it's a bit of a domestic. I think that's what's happening. What's the significance? Well, at this point, the, the sign of circumcision was the sign of the covenant. This is what marked people out as being the people of God. This is what it meant to be part of those who possess the promises, that walk in the blessing of God. This is to be part of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the whole plan that through this family, through this clan, all the families of the world are going to be blessed and they're going to inherit a land as their own possession. This is the sign. This is the one simple thing that God has asked them to do, to be part of that covenant. And clearly, Moses, for whatever reason, is picking and choosing what he does and doesn't do according to God's word. He's being a bit laissez-faire about what God is saying and doing. Is this important to God? Well, I'd say so. God was about to kill him. Now, For me, I think this extreme reaction from God is sort of in proportion with the calling of Moses' life. 
I don't think every time we step out of God's best for us, he comes with a bolt of lightning. Or he visits sickness upon us or something like that. I don't think God's like that at all. I think this was such a key moment in history. And God's man had to be willing to submit to God's word and to God's way of doing things in order to be able to do what he was called to do. And therefore, because so much was placed upon him, the expectation was high as well. Did not Jesus say, to whom much is given, much is expected. And to whom much is entrusted, much will be required. That's Luke 12, verse 48. So what about us? What has God asked of us? We are no longer required to practice circumcision, thankfully. But we are told not to forsake meeting together. We are told to break bread in his name. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This is a sign of the covenant that we're part of. We're encouraged to give. We're encouraged to disciple the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them everything that God has commanded us. We are called to pray. We are called to fast. We are called to preach. We are called to bear witness to Jesus. These are the things that mark us out as being the people of God. Right? These are the things that God has called us to do. These are part of our heritage in the same way that circumcision was part of Moses' heritage. It marked him out as being the same people that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were part of. And Christians have done this through 2,000 years of history. Do we take the things that Jesus has commanded us to do and say, right, I like that bit, but I'm not sure about that bit. What part of the instructions of Jesus are we being laissez-faire with? Do we get to pick and choose? Are these things important to God? I believe that one day we will all face God, face to face, and I believe he will ask us the question, what did you do with my instructions? My instructions for God's people, the general instructions, but also the instructions, the prophetic instructions over your life as well, like he did with Moses. I believe God will ask us, what did you do with what I gave you to do? You look at Jesus' parables. How many of them involve the master giving instructions, then going away for a long time, then coming back and saying, what did you do with the instructions I gave you? Just think of the parable of the talents. Think of the parable of the vineyard and the vineyard owners. Think of the parable of the good stewards. The good and unrighteous steward, unfaithful stewards, servants. I'd, probably, I'd say probably about half of Jesus' parables, that's off the top of my head. It involves God giving instructions, then going away, then coming back and say, right, what did you do with it? And what happens? Those who were found to be doing what God had said are celebrated, exalted, come and enjoy the banquet. Those who are found just taking it or leaving it or being laissez-faire about things, what happens to them? Out of darkness. God cares. God cares about the instructions that he gives to his people. And we don't have a right to say, well, I'm not sure I get much out of communion, let's not bother. We don't have a right to say, well, I'm good. I know the Bible says that we shouldn't forsake meeting together, but you know, I'm pretty cool just to do my Christian life, maybe have a chat in a cafe about Christianity from time to time. I know, I know Jesus said, commands us to be baptised, but 
I don't really fancy it. Well, you can take that line, but you will answer to Jesus. Because he will say, what did you do with my instructions? We should take this seriously. Moses wishes he'd taken it more seriously. Zipporah came round in the end. But we need to take it seriously. What has God asked us to do? What did you do with what I said? Verses 27 and 28. Let's move on. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. He went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron the words that the Lord, words of the Lord which he had sent him, and the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled the elders and the sons of Israel. Now, coming back to verse 18, he did not disclose everything to Jethro, but he did disclose everything to Aaron. Aaron was the right person to share the vision that God had given him. We all need an Aaron. When you're starting to believe something about yourself and something about the world that God has given you, when you're starting to treasure that maybe God could use me in some way, maybe I could be something, you need to find someone to share that with. As soon as you're ready, you need to find someone who's going to look you in the eye and say, I'm going to pray until we see this vision come true in your life. Because sharing it with somebody of faith that is not just going to poo-poo it or argue you out of it or remind you of your failures, but instead going to say, do you know what? I'm going to pray until that happens. That is just the most encouraging thing ever. And as you do that, the vision grows. All of a sudden you've got agreement. And agreement in vision is incredibly important. And you can move on to the next stage. We all need an Aaron. The word begins to manifest. What began with just between Moses and God is now starting to grow. Starting to manifest itself in the belief and the faith of Aaron. And then verses 29 and 30. Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of all the people. So they bit the bullet. They bit the bullet. They went for it. Just going to move that along a little bit as well. There you go. Agreement. They went for it. They went public with God's word. At this point, they were fully committed. And also, something they did is they honoured the authority structure. Notice they gathered the elders together. And and it said all the people, but the elders were there. What they wanted to do is share this thing that God had given them as the two of them now. And Aaron was an elder amongst the, the Israelite people, so he had a good platform there anyway. But Aaron was able to say, look, this is my friend Moses. You know who he is. We all know his story. Now the two of us are coming to bring you a vision of what God wants to do. And they did it in a way that was submitting this before the elders to get their agreement. So that the whole people, the whole Israelite people could be of one heart and mind before Moses and Aaron went forward to Pharaoh. That's really important. If God has put something on your heart, if God has laid something on your heart to do or to be, seek to work within the authority structures that you have. It doesn't matter whether that's in church or in the workplace or in your family. Honour the people who are heads of the organisation. Because if you can get them to say, do you know what, you've got, a, you've got something there. We're going to invest in that. We're going to say yes to that. We're going to go together. It carries so much more power and authority. And it doesn't break things as you go. 
So on, even if your leadership structure is a nightmare and they're really hard to negotiate with, still bring things. Honour honor the leadership structure that you're part of because that way things can grow in a safe way and you can carry people along with you. You can do things in a godly way. Hopefully that results like this does in worship. Verse 31, the people believed and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. So we've got the wider agreement. The people believed. Wow. What began with Moses on the side of a mountain is now the whole of the Israelite people with one heart and voice thanking God, already believing, already worshipping, even though God hasn't even begun to move yet. Isn't that wonderful? A whole people prepared and praying. That's a wonderful thing. I love it. It's on. It's like we're actually going to do this. Suddenly this thing has momentum. It has legs. It's going to happen. So let's just have a look at the process. The process of stepping forward into a vision from God. First, you've got to receive it. You've got to receive something from the Lord and begin to nurture what you've received. Then you've got to confess it. You've got to tell. You've got to make some kind of way of voicing that I'm moving in a new direction. To Pharaoh, he just said, let me go back to Egypt. But you've got to be careful about who you share it with. Share it with people of faith. Remember to bring your family along. Spend time with people who are nearest and dearest, explaining what God has begun to say to you and bring them along with you. Find a believing co-worker. That's what Moses did in Aaron. Find a believing co-worker, someone that's going to really nurture that vision in you. And then Moses and the elders. Share the vision. Just speak openly. When it gets to that point where you, just, you have to just be open, share what you're going to do with the people around you and, and just pray that it would result in worship and a fresh move of momentum.